You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Well, at this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has reached heights of incredible popularity. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus was definitely on the national consciousness. In fact, John records for us in his gospel that after the feeding of the 5,000, there was a movement of people who actually wanted to forcibly take Jesus and make him the king. They obviously had read into the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament that the Messiah would be a political figure and leader and king and had yet to embrace the suffering servant aspect of the messianic prophecies and they were anticipating what we regard as the second coming of Christ in his first coming. And so they longed for Jesus to become king. Many of them did. And so he is in a position now of national prominence. And as a result, it says in verse 1 of chapter 15, that then Pharisees and scribes, so scholars along with these religious leaders or the religious sect called the Pharisees, came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Verse 1. Now, the fact that they're from Jerusalem indicates that they are top Pharisees and top scribes who have now left Jerusalem, have descended from the city in order to inspect Jesus. And they came to him and said, verse 2, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, when they ask this question of Jesus, here they come with an attack or a question against him. And the first thing they want to know is, why are your disciples breaking the tradition of the elders? When they eat, they are not washing their hands. Now, when they make that reference, they're not saying that the disciples had bad hygiene or that they were refusing to clean their hands in a practical way before they ate a meal. But they were not cleansing their hands in a ceremonial way before they ate their meal. And this says a couple of different things. First of all, it tells us something about what the disciples of Christ were experiencing in following him. There was a freedom that they had in their relationship to Christ. There was no need for them to, as ex-fishermen, act like they were more religious or more spiritual than they really were. This pseudo-legalism was rejected by them. And so there was no pressure in their hearts to go through some kind of ceremonial washing before they partook of food. But it also tells us something pretty significant about the religious leader's attitude concerning what is called the tradition of the elders. Now, we would think of this, obviously, any tradition of man as being subservient and below the word of God. But listen to some of the things that the rabbis were saying contemporary to Jesus. One rabbi said, Whosoever has his dwelling in the land of Israel and eats his common food with washed hands and speaks the holy language and number three recites his phylacteries morning and evening he may rest assured that he shall obtain eternal life 
Another rabbi said, the words of the elders are weightier than the words of the prophet. And so what these religious leaders were doing when they came to Jesus is they were revealing the heart that they had concerning the traditions, which revealed the heart that they had concerning scripture. In other words, they didn't come to Jesus saying, hey, why don't your disciples do that? That's not biblical. They were saying, hey, that's not traditional. And, you know, for us in our mindset, the tradition of man, it doesn't mean as much to us, but to them, their traditions had overtaken the word of God in importance. And Jesus answered them in verse three, these religious leaders. And he said, and why do you break the commandment of God? Not the tradition of man, but the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. For God commanded, verse 4, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his family. So, verse 6, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So notice right off the bat that Jesus does not argue with them about the disciples having broken the traditions of the elders. But he immediately goes after them for breaking the commandment of God. This tells us that even though they had come to view the tradition of the elders above the word of God, Jesus saw the commandment of God as over and above and supreme over the tradition of man. This is sort of an ace high kind of thing. He's saying, listen, I don't know what you think about these traditions of man, but I know that the commandment of God is the highest statement possible. And obviously he's revealing their perspective. The word of the elders or the tradition of the elders superseded the word of God. And Jesus begins to then give an example of this reality. They had broken the commandment of God in many instances because of their tradition. Take perhaps their keeping or their laws concerning the Sabbath. They had made this thing called the Sabbath that God had created in order to bless mankind. They had turned it into an absolute curse with all of their rules and regulations, it was a very binding kind of day rather than a restful kind of day as God had intended. Their traditions were overtaking the commandment of God himself. Christ points out here in verse 4, one of the ways in which they had abused the commandment of God. And he quotes the fifth commandment, to honor your father and your mother. And he says, you know, the command says, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. They were a culture that valued the honor of parents. They uh, took care of their families. They honored their parents. And I think there's probably more of this that needs to be happening in our own culture and in our own time. But they had created an elaborate system Probably he's referring to the system of Korban where they could designate certain of their possessions to God, but yet keep them for their own enjoyment, but say to their families and to their parents, I'm sorry, I can't financially help you or give you a bed to sleep on, 
because I've dedicated my belongings, my bed, all of that to the Lord. Even though I haven't actually given them to the Lord, they are dedicated to the Lord for a fee. And that has allowed me then to keep my possessions and refuse them from my parents. An elaborate technical scheme that basically just allowed them to keep their stuff and, you know, not have to honor their parents. And so Jesus said, you have broken the commandment of God and you have made void, he says there in verse six, or of no effect, the word of God. You've made it pointless. You've made it powerless. The word of God is supposed to cut like a knife. False teachers love to dull it and soften it to where there is no difficulty. There is no offense. And Jesus went on in verse seven and said, you hypocrites, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, and this is from Isaiah 29, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He calls them hypocrites because the things they did appeared so spiritual. Oh, the washing of the hands in a certain way or the dedication of possessions to God. These were religious ceremonies that looked very spiritual, but were in fact were very self-serving. And so he quotes from Isaiah, and he's saying, basically, look, you guys have been around even all the way back in Isaiah's day. And Isaiah said, this people honors me with lips, but their heart is far from me. There is an external profession of allegiance, but internally, your heart is so far from me. Your heart is so far from God. In vain, they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus here begins to touch on something that only the gospel is really able to touch on. He begins to touch on the fact that these men, with their religiosity, were reforming the external, but had no power to change what was internal. And the religions of the world can change external actions and can promote and exhort towards a change of the external. But in reality, the heart remains the same. It is still corrupted. It is still broken. Only the gospel can reach into the heart. And Jesus has yet to really say that here, but he's beginning to allude to it. And so he says in verse 10, it says that he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And so Jesus takes a thing that they were complaining about, that the disciples were not washing their hands in a ceremonial sense, thinking that these men would then become internally defiled because of what they had eaten. And Jesus begins to say something that was revolutionary to the people around him. He says, listen, hear and understand. This is a statement that is very serious. He says, it's not what you consume. It's not what goes in that defiles, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And that's what Jesus is going to expound upon in this next section. But it's very important for us before we move on to make sure that we understand that we should not build 
man's traditions up against the word of God. To make sure that the things that we do, the traditions that we hold, that these are things that are inspired by scripture and not inspired by our own legalistic tendencies. And to make sure that we're operating within the very wonderful, free sphere of the gospel and what God's word actually says to us rather than a bunch of add-ons to the Christian faith. Now, this whole statement concerning what leaves a man comes out of his mouth as that which defiles him needed some explanation. And so in verse 12, it says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? The disciples are a little concerned. This is maybe a bit of a rebuke to Jesus. The truth had offended these Pharisees, and the disciples had grown up embracing and adhering to the idea that the Pharisees knew what they were talking about. So to hear Jesus speak to them in this way, he's like, they say, did you know that you offended the the Pharisees? And he answered, every plant, verse 13, that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. Now, we've already seen, of course, the great agricultural parables of Matthew chapter 13. And this reminds us, of course, of the idea that in the last day, the angels will come and reap the wheat along with the weeds and separate them one from another. And so Jesus is saying that, listen, if my father didn't plant them, they will be rooted up, but let them alone. They are blind guides. The blind lead the blind. And if they do, both will fall into a pit. Jesus is just basically saying, let them be. You can't change them. You can't appease them. You shouldn't be afraid of them. I think a lot of times in the body of Christ, we need to have this perspective. We get our feelings hurt all too easily, and we think we have to have the responsibility of changing everyone, their opinion, and their perspective. We just simply need to give a reason for the hope that is inside of us. But at some point, just as Jesus said, you have to let them alone. But Peter, verse 15, said to him, explain the parable to us. He, he wanted a, uh, an explanation about this You know, it's not what comes into you that defiles you, but what comes out of you that defiles you. He pressed for an explanation. And Jesus said, verse 16, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And so Jesus here is saying a very radical thing for that culture and their view of the world and mankind. And he's basically saying, listen, it's not the religiosity that can purify you or a lack of religiosity that will defile you. It's, it's what comes out of the mouth. It's what proceeds, he says, from the 
hard. And the reality that we understand all too well is that the sin of a person's life originates in his or her own heart. James said in James chapter 1 verse 14 and 15 that mankind is drawn away by his own desires and entice. Sin is born within the heart. It's not a disease that you can contract from without. It's something that is sickly inside of you from birth. And Paul realized this in an interesting way. As a Pharisee, he was resisting the Lord in his life. But he tells us in Romans chapter 7 that he was considering the law. And as he considered the commandment, thou shalt not covet, he began to realize that he was guilty within, that his heart was indeed covetous, that there was nothing he could do about these tendencies inside of his heart to desire and long for sin. And so Jesus tells us, he says, listen, man is not defiled by his food. He is defiled by his heart. Now, the wonderful news, I mean, the bad news here, of course, for these people listening to this, the bad news at first would be, my goodness, the heart is what is broken. And evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander, as Jesus mentioned, they are coming out of my heart. My heart is broken. My heart is defiled. And this could cause great depression upon the hearer, that grave bad news. But Jesus is telling them this so that he can prepare them for the message of the gospel, the ultimate heart-changing, heart-altering message. Through justification, through relationship with Christ and the resulting sanctification, and ultimately through our glorification, every believer in Christ Jesus will experience newness of heart. Out of our hearts eternally will come pure thoughts, pure motives as a result of what Christ has done. And even here in this life, we are under a new covenant in which God is able to write his word and commandments and law upon our own hearts. Our actual motivations can change as a result of the message of the gospel and the subsequent relationship that we then have with Christ Jesus. Absolutely amazing stuff. Now, verse 21, it says that Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So Tyre and Sidon, these are cities outside of, or a region outside of, a district outside of Galilee, outside of Israel, 35 to 60 miles to the north on the coast. So Jesus is leaving town, but also leaving Israel. And to go even further, he's now in Gentile territory, but a Canaanite woman, verse 22. So this is going back all the way centuries earlier to the original inhabitants of the land. A Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, 
son of David. So in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile territory, about as Gentile of a title as you can have for a woman, a Canaanite woman, she comes and looks at Jesus and says, you are the son of David, a messianic title. She says, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. She gives him the report of what has happened to her child. Now, this is a situation of extreme desperation. We've already seen Jesus, of course, heal many. But here it says in verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away, not heal her, but send her away for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The disciples act very inconvenienced. Please send this woman away. She's crying out. She's a bother to us. They did not suggest, would you heal her? They suggested, would you send her away? And Jesus gives this very cryptic, interesting, and to us on this side of the cross, odd response. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, let it be said that up to this point, Jesus had had a strong Gentile ministry. The wise men had come and worshipped him as an infant. Matthew 4, 15 and 16 declared him as a light to the Gentile world. He had ministered to the centurion in chapter 8. There were Roman soldiers coming out that he referenced there in uh, Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And he had a testimony to the Gentile world. I think this is a hint of the way that the gospel works. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 verse 17 that it is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I believe there is a glimmer of hope and light here. He wants this woman to continue crying out. But she came, verse 25, and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. I think what is happening here is that this woman was being tested by Christ concerning the proper order of things, and she shows that she respects the proper order. She respected the messianic call of Jesus. She respected the fact that he came as the Jewish Messiah. She just wants to have an outflow of the blessings that were found there in Israel. This took humility for this woman to express herself in this way. And she got it. She persistently continued to cry out to the Lord. And Jesus rewarded her great heart of persistence and said, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. She became, as Paul said in Romans chapter 9 through 11, a grafted in branch, not the original branch there in Israel, but grafted in and a child of the promise, a, a transplanted seed of Abraham because of her great persistence. This is a hint to where the gospel is going. Now, Jesus went on from there and walked 
beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered. And when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So there in that Gentile region, Jesus did many miracles, did not refuse the problems that came to him. He isn't looking for perfect people. And they glorify the God of Israel. And this appears to be a Gentile crowd glorifying the God of Israel. And Jesus, verse 32, called his disciples. Here he has this large crowd to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? So here's Jesus, first of all, with his compassion for this Gentile crowd. Notice that the disciples, who were Jewish, were not initiating the care of this large crowd of people as they had done with the 5,000. Here, however, Jesus approaches them and their response is, where can we get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? It's almost shocking to read because, of course, the most amazing there of miracles had previously occurred. Jesus had fed the crowd of 5,000 men plus the women and children previously they'd seen it occur a scene very similar to the scene that they're in at this moment and they just look at jesus and say well where in the world are we going to get enough bread to be able to do that uh, just the forgetfulness of the disciples and i think in one sense an unwillingness for them to believe that christ would actually work amongst the gentile world uh, you know, sort of confessing, hey, we believe that you'll feed the Jews, but not the Gentiles. And of course, these disciples needed to learn that this message was going to be a worldwide universal message. And uh, of course, they would live this out in the book of Acts and see the gospel go, not to just the Jewish world, but eventually and in one sense, predominantly to the Gentile world. And so Jesus said to them, verse 34, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Just amazing. And those who... Eight were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. And so once again, just the miracle of Christ in taking what we do have, these seven loaves and a few small fish, and in the hands of Christ, this becomes enough. He multiplies them to be able to feed thousands. And of course, the big mega message was, listen, I've come to feed the Gentile world, not just physically, but spiritually. Christ is the bread from heaven for all of mankind, not just the Jewish world. 
but a devotional message that we can, of course, carry from this text is understanding that as we give to Jesus what we have, our limitations, our bodies, as we lay our lives down before him, he can then take these bodies of ours and multiply our lives in his hands for real fruit and effectiveness. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.